For me to live is Christ For me to die is gain Every moment in between There'll be joy and there'll be pain I can't worry about the future Or change a thing about my past I've got this moment to believe And I'm gonna make it last I am filled To be emptied This is Pastor Michael Rogers from The Jar at 702 H Street Northeast in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Thank you for listening to our broadcast today. It's been a real uh, eye-opener for Carrie and I as we've been studying in Genesis for um, really the first time in a while where we've really delved into it and we're starting to see these stories in such a different light Mm -hmm. than what we were before. And this week as we were studying um, uh, in Genesis, I just got this sense of of remembering what it felt like when I was just a a young man trying to do good and, and failing miserably at being as good as I wanted to be. I didn't even really understand. I didn't have, there was no moral code that showed me what good was supposed to look like. I just knew that there were some things that I was doing that were hurting me and that were hurting others that I, I regretted, that I wished I hadn't done. And, uh, and all of that is before I even knew that there really was a, a God who said, this is how you should live. And then I met him. And the first thing that I noticed about him is that he has this this sense of being perfect and complete in himself. He is holy, he's separated from us, he's different than us. And if he is as good as they said he was, he is better than I can ever be. And I put myself up against that God and realized that I was severely lacking. I wasn't just a little bit, I was severely lacking and because that was the case, it actually made me feel worse. So before I could feel any better, I actually felt worse. And I started asking, what what can I possibly do to attain to what it looks like God wants from me? Because it's more than I can manage. And then someone introduced me to Jesus. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I understood that the whole point of me understanding my what I now know is sinfulness before I would have just said my mistakes or the things that I did to hurt myself and hurt others, the things that I did to be further separated away from God, um, Jesus took the penalty for my sinfulness and he saved me from it. And that was liberating. There was something amazing about that. There was something greater than anything that I had heard about that. And I, for a while, didn't say yes to it. I looked in a bunch of other religions and thought, maybe this is in all the religions, and maybe I just picked my favorite one. But Jesus is unique. There's nothing like him. And I started realizing that he answers, he checks all the boxes, answers all the questions, he removes all the doubts. He is who he said he is. And I put my faith in him. But a strange thing happened after that. Once I put my faith in him, I felt like now my job was to attain to that same level of holiness that I found out I couldn't live up to. And I kept making mistakes. And I would figure if God was so gracious that he would forgive me for anything that I did, then I could punish myself for it. 
And that way I would show him that I really mean it when I say I don't want to do this anymore. But the way I would punish myself is I would pull myself away from him and separate myself from him. I would stop praying. I would stop reading the Bible. I would stop going to church because that's for people who are good. That's for people who know Jesus. That's for people who are getting it right. And every time he brought me back to the cross and reminded me again that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And I went through that stretch and that period for a long time, and I realized suddenly that the reason that I was, the reason that I was struggling so much is because I was constantly waiting for God to get fed up with me. I was waiting for the moment when he finally said, that's enough, Michael. I can't love you anymore. I'm Irish, so there's a little rebel in me. And that my first response to that was actually to get worse, just to test him and see if that was true. But no matter how deep I went, his grace was deeper. No matter how far away I went, when I turned around, he was right at my shoulder waiting for me to come back. And I started realizing that maybe I'm seeing God in the wrong way. Maybe there is something I need to learn that I haven't learned yet about who he is. Now, every week here at The Jar, we really want you to be ready for the word that God has for you. And so we always start out with the tension. And the tension today is, are you waiting for God to get fed up with you? Are you waiting for him to finally throw in the towel and say that's enough? Maybe you're a believer, maybe you're not. Maybe you have not yet given your life to Jesus. Maybe you gave your life to Jesus years ago, but you're still struggling with this question. When is he going to get fed up with me? And what we want to do, and we do this every week, is we want to take, just ponder a moment and consider a question that we have for you. You don't have to answer to anyone else. Just talk to God about what you feel like the answer is to this question. We're going to give you 10 or 15 seconds to ponder it, and then we'll delve into the scripture. And the question is this. What if God has more patience than we think? All right, we are going to continue this series. Um, actually, this is our last one on yes, Dawn. Yes. Starting next week, we're going to start looking at God the Father and what that means in the Old Testament. Um, but we are ending this particular series, Dawn. We started out letting you all know that we're going to be going through the Old Testament this year for 2024. And as we go through the Old Testament, we are looking for places and correlations and symbols that yes. show us and lead us and that's point right. us to Jesus mm -hmm. um, because that's what this is all about. And so we're kind of coming at that angle and it's been so amazing in our study. Like yes. it's blowing my world away. Like that's the beauty of the Bible. Like these are a lot of these stories I've known since I was a little tiny tyke, but God is showing me some really cool things and we've had some really interesting debates yeah. and discussion some of them, <laughs> in our own study some time. Some of them almost arguments, but we, we figured it out. So we've had debates. Um, but we started out <laughs> the beginning, the very first week, talking about Jesus at the age of 12 and how he went to the temple. And when he went to the temple, Mary and Joseph thought they lost him. Yeah. When in reality, he really wasn't lost, right? And when they find Jesus in the temple, he is asking questions. Yes. The Son of God is asking questions. And he's surrounded by these, these religious leaders that are 
four times older than he is and he is asking questions and he's learning and he's figuring out where he fits inside of the world that he's going to be ministering to. Then we started in Genesis chapter one. Yes. And we started to see how God created the earth, right? And we talked about all of those things. And then we got into chapter three where we got to the fall and where Adam and Eve took a bite of that famous what they call, we look at as apple, but yeah, we don't know what it was. Some kind of fruit. Um, and all of a sudden, the perfect creation, the perfect world that God had created, has now, an evil has been introduced to it. Okay, it was always good, but when Eve took a bite of that fruit, evil was introduced. Um, and now we are starting from that point forward. But even in the midst of the fall, we see where God's love and mercy is throughout That's those right. first three or four chapters of Genesis. Yes. And what I mean by that is we learned very early, after, right after the fall, that God could have just said, you know what, I'm mankind, out. I'm out. Yeah, I'm, I'm you're on your own. Yeah. I'm out of here. He could have said that in that moment, but he didn't. Now, there was discipline. Right, and we talked about the difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is punishment. Discipline is consequences with love. Yes. And out of that, you're going to learn something. And that's what God does here in these first few chapters, is he provides discipline for Adam and Eve. He, he provides a protection, actually. As we get into the end of chapter 3, we right. see that God is saying, Oh my goodness, I don't want mankind to have to live in a world that's evil all the time. So he actually puts cherubim and guards the tree of life because he does. he's scared that they'll fall again and be tempted and eat from the tree of life. And when they do, they'll live forever in this world of evil. And he doesn't want that for us. So throughout those first few chapters, we see his love, his mercy, and his grace to us in so many ways. And yes. it's just been a real eye-opener. But today, we're going to start in chapter 6. When we got to the end of chapter 5 um, last week, we saw that the descendants leading up to Seth, okay, leading up or up to, to Noah. Noah, I'm sorry, leading up to Noah. And um, as we were doing that, we were seeing in, in chapter 5 that at that point men were living for almost a 1,000 years, men and women, okay? Right. So right. they had a, a pretty, that's a long time, yeah. right? Um, and basically we see 10 generations in this chapter 5 leading up to the last verse where it talks about Noah, and that's where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with Noah at 500 years old. As time is going on, there's a lot of time. They're, they're estimating probably about 500 to 2,300 years in that time span. We really don't know, but it's a lot of time. Like a lot can happen in 100 years, right? And so a lot of time has passed. And as They've been, they've been multiplying, and as more and more children have been coming, the world has been becoming more and more evil and fall, falling farther and farther away from God. That's and right. we learned last week mm -hmm. that we saw the separation. From, we talked about Cain and Abel last week and how when Cain killed his brother Abel, there was a separation. We had or Seth, Seth. Seth and his descendants yes. believing in God and following God, and then we had Cain who leaves and doesn't believe in God. And so there's this separation between men and women who don't believe and the ones who are following God. So you want to start with 6-1? Yeah, chapter 6, verse 1. We are working in the NLT. 
then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. There's a lot of conflict, I would say. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's conflict, but debate. Yeah, debate. Right? And we're going to find out as we get a little bit further into verse 4 um, when we talk about the Nephilim. So basically, there have been hundreds of books that have been written about these first four verses and talking about who were the Nephilim and who were these people that is mentioned here. Um, you know, and there's really two theories. One is, and we're not going to, during conversation time, if you have questions about that, we'll discuss it more. But there's basically two theories. The first theory is that they are fallen angels that uh, are basically lusting after women on the earth. And that that comes from the fact that sons of God is a phrase that's used to speak about angels in other places. Right. But then the other theory is that really it's, it's the descendants of... Seth. Of Seth, and that there's a difference. Basically, that there are some from Seth who are basically having sexual relations and being with the Canaanites. Ma- the Mar- ones Mary and the women, yeah, right. women of Cain. Right. That's right. So there's two different theories on that. Um, at the end of the day, we really don't know. One thing we're learning about Genesis, there's a lot of we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right? Because... If God were to put thousands of years, like I said, there's a lot of time in between some of these chapters, it would fill this whole room, just the book of Genesis alone, right? So just remember that God is picking and choosing this part of the story that he feels is most important that he wants us to understand and to know, okay? So here we are in chapter six, like Michael said, the sons of God saw the beautiful women and took what they wanted, who they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, beginning in verse 3, then the Lord said, my spirit, notice that's a capital S, and when it's a capital S, it's always the Holy Spirit, right? My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh in the future. Their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. Yeah, and if you now you remember, right after the fall in chapter three, he took away their their opportunity for immortality because he didn't want them to live forever under this fallen state. Now he's saying, even a thousand years is too long. Let's make it one hundred and twenty. But notice it says, "My spirit will not strive." It it, it means that um, in some way, shape, or form, we don't know what this looked like back then, but the Holy Spirit was involved was uh, helping them to make decisions. It doesn't mean that they were indwelt like we are today, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit was involved in the process, and he says, I, I don't want my spirit to have to strive with these men for a thousand years. Think of, just think of, I, I know as, as a 50-year-old, I, I had there some regrets that I still ever once in a while just drum back up in my world. Imagine if you had a thousand years to make mistakes. Imagine how much regret you could build up in your mind. I just can't imagine it. And I think that God is saying not only that he is not going to strive like this for longer than that 120 years, but it's not even fair to us mm-hmm. to give us that more than that 120 years. Right. Um, and so we, when we look at that, we see God's mercy in that. This is not God saying, I'm going to kill them sooner. This is God saying, maybe a thousand years is too long. Maybe we need to cut this down to 120 mm-hmm. So then in verse 4, it goes on in those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of the ancient times. Now, what we're going to find out, though, is, and I think why he mentions it here, despite all the debate, 
when we start in verse 5, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. In other words, they weren't just doing evil things and sinful things. It was in their thoughts. Yeah, they were thinking up new stuff. In their minds. Yeah, yeah. Right? They didn't need Satan to edge them on or to tempt them. They were already doing it. Okay? So this is basically carnal. This is do whatever you want. There's no consequences. I don't care about you. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And yes, we see parts of the world that are like that, right? But I can't imagine the whole that that whole that being the culture completely. The whole. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just really bad. And like I said, it was it was their imaginations, their thoughts, their spirits, their minds, their bodies, everything was evil. When, when God was talking to Cain and Cain was so upset, he said, be careful because sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. And so that's what we're seeing. Um, he told Cain, do, just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing and you'll find approval from me. But these people are always doing the things that take them further and further away from God. And so in some way, shape or form, whatever the Nephilim were, one of the things that was happening was these Nephilim, which really just means giant people or tall, very tall people, um, these people were in some way pulling people away from the worship of God and toward the worship of self and of each other. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that idea of evil is a biblical kind of evil. So it doesn't mean that every single person was a murderer or something like that. What it means is everyone stopped connecting their lives to God completely mm-hmm. so that they never even thought of him. All they thought about were themselves. Right. And whoever these giants were, it doesn't. what we really know is it made God angry. Yes. Right? They were crossing yes. forbidden lines that God had set, and they were not doing his will. Right. And so he was not happy with them, and it wasn't good. And you think about this. When we sin, which here at the jar we say is missing the mark, right? When we are tempted, that's one thing. But when we sin and actually do it, we are creating our own giants, aren't yes, we? Yes. We're creating the giants that that suppress us, that that over overrule us and take over. And last week we talked about how um, God said to Cain, "Don't let sin overrule you. If you do what is right, you're gonna. It's gonna. You're gonna you're, I, I'm it. gonna have favor for you, mm-hmm. right? And so here we see these giants." that are taking over and just suppressing. And we have our own giants, right? When we overstep God's will, go against what he tells us, when we sin, we do that. And some of the worst actions we ever make are ones that we make and we create those giants in our world. So because we even do that still today at times, it is important for us to know how God feels about it. Mm -hmm. And that's what the scripture tells us next. So let's see what God says. So starting in verse six, so the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. Um, and that word sorry there, it doesn't, in the Hebrew, it does not mean regret. So God isn't saying, I regret making mankind. I regret making the earth. That is not what he's saying there. Actually, that word sorry there actually means taking a deep breath in extreme pain. In our language, it would basically be a sigh sigh of grief. 
So when you are grieving over someone or something, right, it's too much to bear. His heart was broken. That sorry there is grief. And here's the thing about grief. You can't grieve over something that you don't love. That's right. So he loved mankind. He loved us. And his heart was broken. And his handiwork, everything that he had made, think of God as an artist in this moment. Mm -hmm. Everything he had made of the world and of mankind was no longer the way that he originally made it. When he first made it, we saw he said it was good over and over. Yes. It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Right. And here it is not so great. Yeah, think, think of a potter having a, a, a clay on a wheel and he's creating a vase and he's created the vase and he gets to where it's completely perfected and then all of a sudden a little tiny imperfection somewhere causes the rest of it to unravel and all of a sudden it's no longer in the shape that it was before and what an artist has to do then is bring the clay back down to a lump and start over mm -hmm. and that's what we see God doing that's right I have an illustration too do you still oh, want yes, me to share it? please do so this is a good illustration Leonardo da Vinci was painting his masterpiece, The Last Supper. This is something I didn't know, but he went looking for models to sit for the various disciples and for Jesus. Um, and it took him many years to create, right, The Last Supper painting. But he found a handsome and innocent looking man in a choir in one of the churches in Italy, and he painted him as Jesus in the great painting. And the man's name was Pietro Brennadilli. Good, right? Good job. Good <laughs> job. So years passed. And as da Vinci continued to work on the painting, he left the face of Judas Iscariot for last. And so Leonardo went out into the streets of Rome, and he was looking for the most forlorn person he could find. And he saw this man who he wanted to be the disciple to portray uh, Judas. He was, his face was drawn. He was villainous. So he hires the man. He brings him in to sit for the face of Judas. And when he has completed the work, he was about to dismiss the man when he asked by the way sir what is your name again and the poor gentleman said don't you worry don't you remember me or don't you know me i am pietro benedili i also sat as your model for jesus for the face of jesus the poor man had drifted so far from being good to becoming what he was then after he found him again and that he couldn't believe what he was seeing Right, so beware, beware of drifting yes. from God, yes. right? And here we see that is what man has done here. That's right. You know, um, they have drifted. Now, that's the hard part of the story. Yes. Now we're going to see God's redemption, right? So we go to verse 7, and the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them, but Noah found favor with the Lord. Yes, and that word favor in the Hebrew is chen, and it's the same word they use, that, what they would uh, translate as grace. So Noah found grace with the Lord. Grace and favor uh, are very closely connected. And so what caused him to receive that? What is it about Noah 
that was different because if, if the people may have separated themselves from God, but Noah dared to be different. That's right. So let's look. The story of Noah, beginning in verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Yes. So what does it mean to be righteous? We tell you all the time that a good way to remember what that means is that it, what it means is right living. It's an opportunity for us to live in such a way that we are constantly doing the next right thing. And so what we know about Noah is that he was, he doesn't mean that he was necessarily perfect, but he was trying to do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. And then it says he was blameless. And the fact that he was blameless doesn't mean that he was perfect or that there was, he had never done anything wrong. The actual word in the Hebrew means to be complete. It's like, you know how when you put a pencil on paper and you start to draw a circle? And until you completely come around to where that circle started, it's, it's, just a, it's just an arc or a wavy line. But the minute that you connect it, it is now complete. And it's one line and it's a circle. Um, and that's, that kind of completion is what he is finding in God. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to do the next right thing. He's find his completion in God. And then he's walking with him in such a way that the people around him notice. As a matter of fact, you've got a New Testament scripture. Uh, yeah, Second Peter, I think it's chapter 2. I think I turned it too quickly, but Second uh, Peter chapter 2, I believe he said, Peter basically says, not only was he, um, was Noah a righteous man, but he also preached righteousness. Right, right. In other words, he walked the walk and talked the talk. Yes. Right? He didn't just talk about being right. He actually was doing what was right, and the people around him knew that, and they saw it. And then we go back to, like I said, with Cain, what we learned last week. When God, when God warned Cain, do what is right, yes. and you will find my favor. And here Noah is doing what is right, mm -hmm. and God is saying, you have found my favor. And, I, and to tie in the New Testament, which is what we've been trying to do, it brings me back and reminds me of Romans chapter 12, verses 2, that says, And be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And so Noah was doing that. Yes. He was doing what Romans 12, 2 said. I love that verse because it starts out in the mind. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but renewing your mind doesn't prove anything. So if you're going to prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, you have to be taking what you have learned in your mind and living it out. It's being filled in your mind with what God wants you to do and say and believe and understand and act. Uh, we often hear say, we want to look like, think like, speak like, act like, smell like Jesus if we can. But in order for us, for people to know it, we have to be emptied for them. And that proves the perfect and good and acceptable will of God. Right. So starting in verse 11. Now God saw that once again, now God saw the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. So beginning in verse 13, God says to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. I will wipe them out along with the earth. But turn, I'm turning the page. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> verse 14, here it comes, the redemption. Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out and then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior and then he goes on beginning in verse 15 to give instruction to noah now notice god didn't say build a boat and then walked away right good thing 
right? Because if Noah would have said, okay, he would have had no clue how big to make it. He would have known how, he wouldn't have known what to do. But God doesn't do that. He says, build me a build a boat. And here are the instructions and the things that I need you to do. This is how you do it. Okay? And in the same way we think about that with God, he always instructs us. He guides us. He shows us yes. what he wants us to do to live that right living. And it's right here. Right? That's right. Okay. So he gives those instructions to him. And then he goes on to say in 17, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die, but I will confirm my covenant with you. Whenever we're dealing with people, there are two ways we typically deal with them. One of them is with a contract. You and I are going to put our a name to something, and I'm going to promise I'm going to do certain things, and you're going to promise you're going to do certain things, and we have a, a clerk from the court or something, somebody, some notary does it or something like that. It says, I'm going to fulfill my end of the bargain. And if I do, you fulfill your end of the bargain. That's a contract. And you have to have, there's no relationship necessary for that to be, for that to be true. That is just legal terms. Then there's also a promise. And a promise often is given to someone that you love. I promise I was talking this morning to a Gabby and, a, and I said, if you're really good, I promise I'll bring you some ice cream. Now, I have a relationship with her, so saying I promise I, I, I'm going to give you some ice cream, because of our relationship, she can decide whether to believe me or not. But I'm a fallen human being, and sometimes I promise things that I don't necessarily follow through on. So even though a promise has relationship, it requires us in that relationship to both hold up our end of the bargain. It's kind of like the contract, except there's relationship. A covenant is a relational contract. It says, I care so much about you that I'm going to put my whole self on the line and I'm going to promise 100% that I am going to do what I said I'm going to do. And when I covenant with you and you covenant with me, it typically involves a relationship and it involves a commitment. So it is greater than a promise and it is greater than a contract. And when we uh, approached Solid Rock about using this building, uh, we started talking about drawing up a contract, and Pastor Steve said, I would rather we had a covenant. And so we drew up a covenant between us that promoted our relationship while also laying out the terms of the contract. And that's what God is doing here. He's saying, look, I love you so much, I'm going to do these things for you. But I want you to be so sure of it that you have no doubts whatsoever that what I'm telling you is going to be true. So I'm not just going to promise you, I'm going to covenant with you that it's going to be true. And this is the first time it's used in Scripture. And we know when we go further in the future that Jesus is also our covenant, isn't yes. he? Yes, yes. This is the first time when we see that God gives specific instructions for Noah to build an ark that's going to keep his family safe through all of the floodwaters, all of the days, and we're going to find out how long that is in just a minute, and it's way longer than the Bible, than when we learned when we were little. Yeah. <laughs> um, he is preparing this ark that is going to be safe and protective, and in the same way, we can say that about Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I want you to think about symbolically the ark representing Jesus in a lot of ways as far as he has created this safe place and he has made this covenant and this promise. 
right? So Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. God always provides an ark for those who seek him. Yes. For those who seek him. The world would have you believe that you can make it to heaven on your own by doing good works. But God says in Titus chapter 3, he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, the right things, but because of his mercy and grace. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so that covenant that God gives here to Noah, God gives us another covenant through Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that even more at the end. Yeah, well, this covenant begins it. And then there's a covenant with Abraham. And that is, now we think of it as the old covenant. And now the covenant with Jesus is the new covenant. And another word for that is testament. Mm -hmm. So when we read the Old Testament, we are reading about the old covenant. And the reason it's called the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene is because Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And that New Testament is what we live in now. Right. So let's go to seven. When everything was ready, the Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with all your family. For among all the people (laughs) of the earth, I can see that you alone are what? Righteous. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to tell them to take seven pairs, male and female. So two, we, we learn about the two pairs, right, when we're little, two by two, right, of every animal. But then there are seven animals that are what are considered pure. The clean animals. The clean animals. And those are the ones that are for sacrifice and to eat, okay? And so he tells them to do that. And it goes, when you go down to five, it says, so Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. So another thing we can learn from Noah, he was obedient, He was obedient. God said, do it, and he did it. He trusted the promise, and he did it. Now we see in verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. So 500 years old, he has his kids. 100 years later, 600 600 years old, this is when everything begins to rock and roll. (laughs) Right? And so they go into the ark. Uh, Verse 7, he went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife, his sons, and their wives, and all of the animals with them. And then we go further on, then starting in 11, when, when Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. So, um, let's see, so... 13, that very day Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, and with him in the boat were all of the animals, two by two, male and female. And it keeps saying, just as God had commanded Noah, yes, all just, through the story. Yes, over and over. And then we see in verse 16, second sentence, then the Lord closed the door behind them. Now, God brought this to me, and I thought it was so beautiful. He not only prepares this ark of salvation, this ark of rescue for Noah and his family, but the moment they obey him and they go into that ark, they step into that door and he seals the door and he closes it. Why? To protect them. He is protecting them. That boat was, was safely designed by God, just like the plan of salvation was designed by God. That's right. 
So when we say yes to Jesus, we are walking into, we are stepping into that ark. And we are saying, I believe in your promises, Lord. And I believe what you have told me. And I am going to let you put your seal, close that door. I am yours now. And, the book and of that Ephesians, is what is happening here. The book of Ephesians tells us that seal is the Holy Spirit. The reason we've given the pledge of the Holy Spirit is because it seals us in God. Uh, so that we can know that we've been covenanted with God, that he is saving us from our sins and from our sin nature. His intention is for us to become better and better and more and more like the, God, the, the person God meant us to be, but also that we have a future because whatever happens in this life, in the next life, we are going to be there with him. That's right. So then let's jump to chapter 8. Chapter, chapter 8. eight. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat, and he sent a wind to blow across the earth, and the floodwaters began to recede. The underground waters stopped flowing, and the torrential rains from the sky were stopped. So the floodwaters gradually receded from the earth, and after 150 days, exactly five months from the time the flood began, the boat came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Two and a half months later, did you notice that? It comes to rest at five months. Then two and a half months later, as the waters continue to go down, other mountain peaks became visible. Then in verse six, then after <laughs> another, 40, another days, 40 days, Noah opened the window and he made, and he released a raven. And so it talks about how he, we always see it as a dove, right? But he releases this bird. And what he's doing is he's sending it out to see if there's any dry land. And you'll notice as you go from verse 6 all the way down to 12, over and over, the word wait comes up. Yep. Noah waited. Noah waited. Noah waited for the raven to come back. Then he Noah sent a waited. dove, and he waited for the dove to come back, and he <laughs> right. came back empty-handed. Then he waited and sent it back out, and it came back with a, with a leaf. And then he waited and sent it back out, and it never came back. And he said, okay, now I think it's ready. I think, right. I think it's time. So then go to verse eight, chapter 8, verse 13. Noah was now 601 years old. So they have been on the ark. By the time we get done to the end of verse 14, one year. That is a long time, y'all, to be on a boat with a bunch of live animals. And only my family, I'm just saying. <laughs> right? So you know Noah's like, please, Lord. Please, Lord, can we get off this boat soon? They were on that boat for a year. Right? And then verse 15, then God said to Noah, finally. He didn't say finally, but I'm sure Noah said it leave the boat so what else do we learn from noah noah is also patient with the lord yeah. Yeah. he waits upon the lord right he could have turned to his family and said you know what i'm tired of y'all let's get off this boat <laughs> let's get off the boat don't make me turn this ark around yeah you know what i mean he's tired of being on the boat and they want to get off but they don't do that they wait on the lord for the right timing why? Because God's timing is perfect. It is holy. And when you do it the way that he wants you to do it, it's going to be a whole lot easier. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A whole yeah. lot easier. You know, we have opportunities to get out of the boat ourselves. And you know, later Peter does the same thing and gets to walk on water because he keeps his eyes on Jesus. And we, as we get out of that boat, it's, it, it's, it's an opportunity for us to be able to do what God has called us to do. But the thing is that if we try to rush it, there may be things that God has to get in place. 
that have nothing to do with you. You have to wait for him to create the right uh, setting, the right circumstances, and have everybody ready for what it is that he's asking you to do. And if you try to rush it and try to push ahead, uh, you are walking into a place that's not prepared. But if you are patient with God and you let him do the work, then when you walk into it, it's already been prepared for you. There is already a place for you to experience the opportunity that you have. Mm -hmm. So verse 16, leave the boat, all of you. You and your wife, your sons, their wives, release all the animals, the birds, the livestock, the small animals that scurry along the ground so they can be fruitful and multiply throughout the earth. So what is God saying? He's saying, I have accepted you and you have, you have stepped into my ark of protection, of salvation. But now that I've rescued you and now that I've saved you, you can't stay on the boat forever. It's time to leave the boat. It's time to be fruitful and to be multiplying, right? And in the same way, when we accept Jesus into our lives, we are stepping into that ark. We are stepping into that boat. But then God says, I don't want you to hide in the boat. I want you to go out and I want you to tell others. And I want you to live the way that Noah lived. Be righteous, be blameless, be obedient, and be willing to wait. And in that, you will find my favor. I think of um, what I mentioned earlier about the tension and how sometimes I would punish myself. What I found was that I was constantly running back to the boat. <laughs> I'd, I'd leave the boat, then I'd come back to the boat because that's where it's safe. And I'd leave the boat and come back to the boat. Leave the boat and come back to the boat. And, and what God wants is for us to walk with him as we walk <coughs> away from the boat and to be fruitful and multiply there. And for us spiritually, that means to be letting people understand that what we are experiencing in our lives is only possible through Jesus. Uh -huh. And everything that happens, um, the, the people that we read about in Acts, whose numbers were added to daily, knew very little about the scriptures. Uh, churches that were Gentile instead of Jewish didn't even have the Old Testament scriptures. What they knew was Christ and him crucified and their story with him. And yet, the Lord was adding to their number daily. And that's, so for us, we have to remember that it's not about learning every single verse in the Bible. It's not about being able to quote scripture. It's not about um, memorizing the Roman road or the way of the master. It is about recognizing what God is doing in your life right now and giving him credit for it in such a way that it causes others to wonder how they can get some of that. That's right. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of The Jar with Pastors Michael and Carrie Rogers. If you'd like to support our mission, you can go to www.thejarministries.net and look for the Give button in the top right. Your sponsorship allows us to continue ministering to the least of us in our great city of Ardmore, Oklahoma. Thank you so much. I am filled to be empty